Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. everyone and welcome to this week's episode of the proper class podcast i'm laura checkley and i'm hannah chiswick and we are of course here to celebrate all things working class because if we don't who the bloody hell will as always we sit down with a working class hero to celebrate their life and achievements and discuss just how they got to where they are today and on that note who are we celebrating this week law well this week's guest is actually quite a big deal and so much so that I am concerned that this intro of their achievements might take up the entire episode. Get on with it then. (laughs) All right. Has the heat got to someone there, Hannah? <laughs> actually, the heat has actually got to me. That's the truth. In do you know? Do you remember that episode of Friends? Do you remember when Monica went? I don't know where she'd gone, but basically she had some sort of like humidity issue, and her hair got bigger and bigger. Well, basically that's me, except I'm more southeast London than South LA. But nevertheless, anyway, get on with it. <laughs> it's the humidity. They went on holiday, didn't they? <laughs> that's literally my hair. And for those of us who actually can see each other right now, you would all agree. That it is actually doesn't look that bad. It doesn't look that bad. This it week's does. guest hails from County Dublin, Ireland. Whilst at uni studying horticulture, he started up his own comedy night, which was such a success that he jacked in his studies and headed to the bright lights of London to seek out his fortune. Made him sound like Dick Whittington there. <laughs> <laughs> I've been walking for miles and there's still no sign of Dick. It's something like that, I isn't knew it? you were going to say that. <laughs> well, it turned out to be a wise choice because he went from strength to strength. And at the 19th... 1998 Edinburgh Festival, he was nominated for the prestigious Comedy Award. Uh, since then, he has continued to take the festival by storm with eight sellout shows and no doubt another one this year. In 2006, his show Standing Up and Falling Down was the best selling comedy show at the festival. Wow. He has toured the UK and Ireland extensively, again packing out venue after venue. Not content with that, he hit the international circuit playing top comedy clubs around the globe and repeating his sellout successes in Australia, Canada, New Zealand, and even smashing it in the US of A. He recorded three DVDs of his hit stand-up tours, Pedantic and Whimsical, Crowd Pleaser, and the appropriately titled for our podcast anyway, Different Class, in which he talks about his upbringing, his parents and the class divide. His new tour, Tragedy Plus Time, is now on sale, so get buying, folks. The show is inspired by the quote attributed to Mark Twain, humour is defined as tragedy plus time, and uses the most tragic event in our guest's life as its starting point. The show will open this August at the Edinburgh Festival uh, before touring the UK until the end of the year. Told you there was loads to stay. Unless you've been living under a rock the past couple of decades, you will have seen this man on your TV screens and heard him on your radio many, many times as both presenter and panellist on shows such as Mock the Week, Have I Got News for You, The Unbelievable Truth, What's So Funny and The Graham Norton Show. He is even a regular face on US TV, making five appearances on NBC's Late Night with Conan O'Brien. He also hosted four series of Ed Burns' Just for Laughs, No More Secrets Who Our Guest Is Now, on (laughs) RTE. And if Wikipedia is to be believed, he was even on Blind Date. No. Let's find out if that's true in a moment. Oh, my God. He has also presented factual pieces for Country File, The One Show and Science Club. But the thing I am most jealous of, though, is that he drove across Siberia for the world's most dangerous roads. I want to do that so badly. I'm literally obsessed (laughs) with that programme. If you ever get asked to go on it, Law, you have to to take me with you well I'll have to because I don't drive do I 
Oh, yeah, there is that. <laughs> I don't care how I get to go on it. I'm happy to drive. You would be hard pushed to find a comedian with better reviews than our guest. Repeatedly praised as one of our greatest comedians, a master of observational comedy, combining a self-deprecating humour with an effortless stage presence that fills every room he performs in. Recently, he returned to his roots as the face of Tourism Island. But surely, surely his biggest achievement to date must be, well, some might say, becoming a dad. But I'm going to say winning all-star family fortunes. Listeners, yes, give a huge proper class podcast welcome to the hilarious Hilarious and utterly brilliant Ed Byrne. Hey. And breathe. Well, there is a lot there, isn't there? There's a lot there. You've been busy. Yeah. Really? Yeah. You had to leave out quite yeah. a bit, though, didn't you, Han, as well? Also, we're never, literally, it's going to be the whole 45 minutes if I carry on. So. <laughs> well, yeah, I, I mean, with, with such a long list, I'm almost disappointed it's me. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> and were you really on blind date? Yeah, that, that happened. That absolutely happened. Yeah, back when I was in. Uh, I, I, it was before I became a stand-up and I had just, I think at the time I was still working in the student union at Strathclyde Uni. Um, it was mad. I've done a lot of stuff over the years, but I've never been as famous as I was when I was on Blind Date. Isn't that, that was incredible. fucking infuriating? Mm. <laughs> and were you the contestant or were you looking for a date, Ed? Uh, no, I was one of the people uh, giving answers. I, I was one of the two people yeah. not to get picked. <laughs> That's who I was. Uh, she ended up picking uh, Gavin, the strippergram from Kings Lynn. He was the one that she uh, went off oh, with. Well, yeah, sure. And they went on a day trip to Cambridge. He's from Kings Lynn. They, Cambridge? Like, he would do his... Road, as he said himself, it? his mum goes shopping in Cambridge. That is a piss poor date. Yeah. Oh, what a shame. I think shame. the previous what? couple had just come, up, come back from Tenerife or something like that for a week. <laughs> oh, you'd be gutted, wouldn't you? So listen, Ed, we, um, we start each week asking our guests to take us back to a place and time that has some meaning to them, uh, somewhere that has a connection to their working class route. So if you were able to take us back anywhere uh, today, where would that be? I mean, I don't know. It would probably be, I don't know, the, the school I went to, which was uh, called St. Cronin's. Oh, going to have to change that uh, security answer now on me banking. <laughs> um <laughs> Or, the, or just the house I grew up in that my parents did live in, you know, which was a, a semi-detached in swords. And uh, yeah, I guess that would be, that would be a place that defined me, a place that I, I grew out of, yeah. And what's, um, I mean, obviously, uh, we'll talk about your school in a minute, um, but with with your house, what was the setup? Did you have siblings? Uh, yes. Was it, um, you were, you know, like what you said was a terrace house, was it? No, it was a, it was a semi-detached, small garden that show different class that I did was all about the fact that when my upbringing was a weird, I was never particularly avowedly, I was either working class or middle class. I had this weird in between thing yeah. that I was, you know, middle class people would have said, would have said that I, I, I was working class, mm -hmm. uh, but we didn't live in like a council house. We didn't, you know, we lived in a, you know, we had our own house. We had, there, were, there were certain aspects of our upbringing that were middle class and then other aspects that were avowedly working class, you know, like my parents didn't go to university, but over the years, they kind of had a sort of aspirational thing where they sort of moved up through the classes pretty much after I left home. So my dad was an, was an aircraft mechanic. He was a sheet metal worker. Oh, wow. You know, but by the time he retired, he had sort of moved off the shop floor and went from fixing airplanes to pointing at people and telling them to fix airplanes. <laughs> You know. it's, it's an interesting conversation, one that we always have on here um, often about um, moving through the, the, the classes, you know, like, you know, I'd look at my life now and say it's obviously very middle class um, or what people would consider uh, middle class. Um, but I still very feel very, very working class at my roots. Um, I think there's something about like what makes one working class. Is it? Yeah. What you've got in front of you, uh, how you grew up, your ethic, and I think like there's this thing about being working class that we're not allowed to work up through the ranks and and do better. Suddenly, then we then become something else. Yes, the concept of aspiration sometimes can be very frowned upon. Right. Yeah. And how was that in your house? Were your parents very aspirational for you? Well, yeah, three of the four of us ended up going to you know university. Oh, but we were the first of our generation. Our generation was the first in our family to do that. Yeah. 
and and my sister was the only one who actually finished it. And I remember because my sister went to Trinity College and I remember within a week she was she she came home speaking in a different accent. <laughs> and, I, and we absolutely hammered her for it, you know, of course. And, and, and suddenly like she would bring mates home that were they seemed like they were from another planet when actually they were just from the south side of the city we grew up in. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Would you say that sort of everyone living around you was in a pretty similar this the way you just described it is sort of halfway between working class and middle class like were you aware of class as a child or was everyone just sort of on a similar level no it was very very mixed and that was the curious thing i i because you a lot of places i've lived since have been avowedly one thing or another sure. whereas the town i grew up in swords has been was always very mixed and the school i went to was very mixed so like I went to a Christian Brothers school for four years and literally there were people in that school. There was a guy in that school who went, who won the Young Scientist of the Year competition. <laughs> but there was also people in my class who went to jail for armed robbery, you know, so it was right across the board. And, and, and the town itself, you know, you had really, really posh bits like... Ronan Keating grew up in one of the estates not far from where I lived. But then you also had, you know, really rough council estates like right next door. So it was all very and all cheek by jowl, you know. So mm-hmm. and it actually meant, made for a lot more trouble than you would get in, 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 in somewhere that was maybe just a bit more uniform, if you know what I mean. Yeah, for sure. And how did that, because I grew up in an area that was quite like that, actually, because I went to a a big comp on a housing estate in South London. And one side of it was like this massive estate that was, well, all you need to know about it is they knocked it down and it was long overdue that they knocked <laughs> it down. And then the other side, I mean, I, I think that people would have knocked it down themselves. And at the same time, we had sort of Blackheath multi-million pound houses at the other end of the long road. And it was a really like a strange kind of vibe for that reason. And, when you say it sort of caused trouble, how did that sort of play out? Well, just at the weekend in the town centre, you know, in the, you know, you know, yeah, yeah, it was that at a kicking out time. There was generally, you know, somebody getting their head kicked in <laughs> yeah, about, yeah. about the size of it. And uh, one thing, I, one of my strongest memories about with the whole class thing is that it seemed like the lower a person's class, the more money they had. That was the really weird thing because, and maybe that's more of an Irish thing, but you had, like, for instance, a communion or confirmation. The people who mm. who you knew to be, you know, sort of, you know, the, it, was, it was council estate kids who were coming in with scads. We, we, we were talking about how much money did you get for your confirmation? I was like, I got, like, totaled up to about £37. Oh, really? I got 180, and it's like this was in Jeez. this was in the early 80s. Yeah, I'm talking, you know, but and these were these were kids who you you knew were like were were, were really really working class kids because you had that kind of cash is king. Yeah, sort of, yeah. yeah, right. And you could also get people who are who are apparently sort of landed gentry and have no money. You know, they're living in houses that are falling down. That weird thing. It's that thing, I mean, I'm just on a different, slightly different level, but, like, I would absolutely spend, I would have spent my last tenner uh, putting it in someone's birthday card and showing up in all the gear, you know. the uh, mm. You'd never know I didn't have any money. Um, and it was the same with my family. Um, right. We would, we would probably give more than we had just because it's about, showing and look it's about looking looking like we we're all right we're doing all right you don't have to worry about us over here um i know me and hannah have often gone down to the terrible gone down to the pub with our last tenner and gone oh you know fuck it you know Mm. like life's too short yeah um let me just take you back to school ed how was it were you academic did you get on all right i yeah i was all right but then again it was you know you weren't supposed to be smart at school that was not i did not go to a school where being no. clever was considered something that you would aim for. And now, right. here's the weird thing. That wouldn't just be with the kids. That'd be with the teachers as well. Really? Like, you could <laughs> sense when you answered a question correctly, a teacher would go, this fucking smart arse. Yeah, I'm not making that yeah, up. Yeah, I am not yeah. kidding. <laughs> yeah. That's not the school I signed up for, yeah. Yeah. 
and you had teachers that only cared about whether or not you were good at football. And by football as well, not soccer, Gaelic football. That was all they cared about. You were either good at hurling or you were good at Gaelic football. And if you weren't good at either of them, they didn't give a shit whether you did your fucking commerce homework. You know. Oh, that's I love the idea of teachers actually being pissed off that you gave a yeah. shit about their subjects. Yeah. <laughs> So when you're at school and obviously you're not wanting to be too clever, is that where the being funny started? Was that what did that often that, you know, you talk to comedians and, and funny people and they go, oh, yeah, I, you know, I, 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 I did yeah. that to survive, you know, or there was a reason why someone was often trying to be funny at school. I think I think so a bit. But it's funny, I can even remember. I don't know why I just think you remember this particular answer. I remember knowing the answer to a question. It was in history and it was what was... What was basically, what did the Treaty of Versailles basically say? And I remember trying to give the answer in the most casual way of, of trying not to sound academic, but still get the answer right. That was a sort of, that was the way I was always couching. The way, oh, you know, it was like, uh, uh, they basically said the war was all Germany's fault and they had to, you know, pay for it. You know, just trying to sound, try to put it in as much of a layman's terms as I possibly could so no one hit me for knowing the answer. That is so brilliant. But I also remember, I remember not so much t telling jokes to avoid bullying as perhaps attracting bullying by, by trying to be funny all the time. <laughs> I was probably a fool to myself. And now I was being a bit daft. If you were, if you were unruly in class and funny in that way, that got you respect. But when we were outside of the classroom and I was just trying to be funny, that got me a smack because that was like, shut up! Yeah, yeah. You know, because then you were just trying to draw attention to yourself and that's no good. And so when you you sort of managed to get through school and then how was secondary school? A similar sort of story? Well, that was secondary school as well. I mean, yeah, sorry, junior school was, was okay. Junior school was all right because nobody had really formed opinions or minds then. I, I think everybody was just, everybody About just kind of, yeah, yeah everybody just kind of rubbed nicer, along. It's always much nicer, isn't it, really. junior school? It's always yeah. so much nicer. Yeah, it was, it was then when we went on, and that was the weirdest thing, I think. But I, I when I moved on to secondary school, people that I knew from junior school, then suddenly when they became teenagers, suddenly are giving you the stink eye because suddenly they realise we're not supposed to be friends. <laughs> they suddenly go, oh no, you grew up on that estate yeah. and I grew up on this estate. So now, and that was, a. I remember just like walking past people who were suddenly giving me evils. I distinctly remember a guy called Jimmy Curtis, who was at my fifth birthday party. And then at the age of 13, 14, walking past him and him giving me the fucking stink eye. Yeah. And not a word has been exchanged between us, you know, in, in five, 10 years. And then there he's just giving me that. And it's like, wow, what do you think it was? He was from Glassmore and I was from Broadmeadow. Like that was, that was about the size of it or... He'd suddenly joined a boxing club and fancied sure, himself a bit handy. Yeah, classic. And I was in a karate club and I, you know, maybe who knows which how it would have ended up. So he has to give me an intimidating look. I don't, I don't really know. But it was like, I felt like going, we literally haven't spoken since probably we were eight. And we were definitely friends then. So what the fucking deal here? But, you know, well, I was 14, 15, so it didn't occur to me to say that, you know. Yeah. But yeah. Uh, school, so I was, at, I was in a Christian Brothers school for four years and it was shit. It was actually so bad. It was, it became the first Christian Brothers school to have a lay person as a head teacher. They had to bring in a civilian to be a head teacher and, and pull it into shape wow. because it had gone down so, so badly. But the, but the, the year, the year they did, that was the year I left. And I went to a, the, the comprehensive on the corner that was right there. It was actually five minutes from my house that was considered not as good a school, but actually turned out to be better. So I went there for, for two years. And that was, you know, what got me sort of enough of, enough of a result to, to go to college. And is that right that you, you went to uni to study horticulture? Was that something you were really interested in or were you just up for going to uni or what, what was that kind of journey to that? I did just want to go to uni. I, I, again. And this is, I suppose, where I'd be very much more. My working class roots would be would 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 be at play. I wanted to be an actor, but the idea of going to university to study drama was just not on the cards. Right, and it wasn't just the thing of you have to have a trade to fall back on. 
So you need, it, it was also just the idea, I just did, I couldn't stand the idea of being a drama student. I just could, I just, it, drama students were wankers as far as I was concerned, as far as anybody I knew was concerned. And so, so there was, that, that was the double whammy of, I didn't want to be one, but I also needed to get, I needed to get a proper degree. So one of my greatest regrets is that I didn't go to uni and study something related to what it is I wanted to do and wanted to be. Like I didn't go and do either drama or some sort of a theater or directing or even like TV production or anything like that. Instead, I used to work with my uncle as a gardener and I thought I could do this and that way I could be self-employed and then that way I'd be free to do auditions or whatever it is I wanted to do. I could pursue mm. acting or whatever at a later date, having gotten myself a proper, you know, qualification. Because that was very much a thing that was kind of beaten into from an early age, that you have to do something proper. Mm. You can't just go off and do something airy-fairy like acting. And so what did? how did you get into acting then? Was that at school people started telling you it was good or did you have anyone that you knew that was no. sort of in the industry? Because, like, I mean, when I grew up, I just didn't know what acting was. No. I obviously had a telly, so I could go, oh, I want to sort of do what she's no, doing. No, I mean, but... literally beyond, you know, there was a school play, you know, but that was about it. But that was only, wasn't even... Every year there was a school play, I think twice in the time I was at, at junior school, at national school. There was nothing in secondary school. No, there was nothing. I, I just I just fancied it. You know, I'd see people doing it. On, and, and, you know, and I was quite funny. Yeah. But I didn't think I was funny enough to be a stand-up comedian. But I thought, you know, I could kind of do accents a bit and that, that sort of thing. So I just thought, I just thought I'd quite fancied doing acting. I remember doing things like... When we were we were talking about TV from the night before, and I'd recite a funny thing that happened, and and people would laugh at a couple of it. Like I had one friend called Derek Bishop who I remember I said to me, "You should be an actor. You'd be a good actor." I think he was the only guy who ever actually said it to me. <laughs> um, but that was it was enough. Again, it was not something I. It was an aspiration. But it wasn't yeah, something yeah. I took seriously. Yeah, what brought you to acting? Well, it was my mate Derek. He. Uh... How that would have gone down. <laughs> A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. So when did you actually stand up and do some, like, when did you do your first stand-up? When did you? My first actual stand-up gig was was in a club that I started in Glasgow. So by that point, I had dropped out of university for various reasons. I hated being poor. 
I hated uh, I, I, the the course I was doing was two years at in, in at Strathclyde Uni in Glasgow, and then it was going to be two years at the West of Scotland Agricultural College in Auchincroove in Ayr. Mm-hmm. Which is somewhere I'd love to go and live now, but at the age of twenty, I didn't really fancy yeah, sure. it, you know. And 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 then also just finding that you know, gardening wasn't for me. And it's quite a lot of commitment for something you're not sure you want to do, isn't it? As well, exactly. And just as a fallback position to spend four years on it, so I just thought, no, I'm going to give this a whirl. I'm going to actually try, and 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 break into it myself. So yeah, you know, I, I, by then I decided on, on stand up comedy and. Uh, yeah, so I was just there wasn't anywhere to play at the time in Glasgow, so I just started up my own club and and did it that way, <laughs> and did it for about I think two months. I did it every week, MC in this club. I I made no money out of it. All the the the, the bar gave me enough money to pay the comedians, and then they took all the money on the bar, and there was a small charge to get in. They they took that as well. So I was doing it for nothing, just the experience, and then did that for a couple of months, and then moved to London and just started doing um you know. Open, open mic in in London. I mean, that's such an. I mean, you're saying that like, oh, I just moved to London, and but that's such a difficult thing to do, like financially. And were you just sort of like, right, I'm just going to go for it? Did you? What did you do? Did you know anyone in London? Did you have anywhere to live? How did um, you support yourself in those early days? I, I was on the dole. <laughs> Quite simply, yeah. Uh, I I was on the dole um, and housing benefit, and I did manage to sign off the dole fairly rapidly in that it was about after about eight nine months i came off the well maybe a year i came off the dole and then it came off the housing benefit shortly after that so certainly within two years i was making enough money to um to live but i remember those early days that was really just things like if your if your check came like like you'd be counting on that check plopping through your door in the morning and going and cashing it. And if you didn't have it, mm. then you just, like I remember having to cancel an open spot because I literally didn't have the money to go to the other side of London because the dole check that was supposed to have come that morning hadn't come. And then and then the guy not believing me when I phoned him to cancel because Ireland was playing in the World Cup that night and he didn't believe that that's the reason <laughs> I had canceled. And that's genuinely the reason I had canceled because I couldn't give a shit about football. But I literally, did sit at home and watch that match. Sure, Drinking sure. a pint of water because I didn't have any fucking oh, money at all. It is something that we talk about because we always say that, like, there's a level of skint that sometimes people who do have money think they are. So we always laugh about it. People going, like, oh, you know, I'm really skint. I've had to dip into my savings. And we're like, no, friend, no. No, no. Mm. You know, like you're saying, having to cancel actually getting some work that would give you the money because you haven't got your the money to get to the work. Like, you know, that is skint. Yeah. How do you feel yeah. like that? Did, do you feel like that may have, like, uh, halted you in the early days? Because um, I know I felt like that as a creative and a writer and stuff. I didn't have the space or time. I was having to take jobs, you know, you know, waitressing or whatever, because I just had to pay my rent. And really what I needed to be doing was getting out there and, you know, doing it. But so did you find like it delayed it somewhat in that, in those early days? To be honest, it kind of lit a fire under me arse because I've, I've known a lot of people who had day jobs mm, yeah, uh, who then were a bit more casual and a bit more lackadaisical about chasing the work. Whereas I, would go and do a gig that other people wouldn't want to do for the 15 quid it was offering because I I needed that money. I wanted that money. But it is, yeah, how just a tiny thing when you have, when you literally have no money, how a little bump in the road will. I remember buying Time Out. The, The magazine Time Out was an indispensable guide. It was, that was how you found the phone numbers and the addresses of the comedy clubs that you would phone up to work in. Mm-hmm. And so that was a that was an important expense every week you buy time out. And I remember getting me check, having, I think it was 35 quid. For some reason, I gave the guy the 20 pound note to buy the time out. This was in Camberwell, next door to the Dole office. And him thinking I'd only given him a fiver and given me only change for a fiver. And me going, no, mate, I gave oh. you a 20. And him going, well, we're going to have to check the till, but we don't check that until the end of the day. So I can't. I go, dude, I need this oh, money God. now. I've got to. And, and, lit- and, then, and then having my day ruined 
Because I literally, and then go, going back at the end of the day and I'm going, oh yeah, you're uh, right. Sorry, I was 15 oh pound over. God. Here's your 15 quid. But I had to wait all day to get that. And, you know, the day being fucked because again, but the, that money that I needed to, to do the things I had to do, I didn't have in my hand. Like you said, those things do light a fire under your ass, don't they? And we, we talk about it, we spoke about it with a, a previous guest about it making you uh, chippy. Um, and do, do you think like that that kind of struggle and having to really kind of scrap your way to where you are, do you, do, do you think that has come from your working class roots? Yeah, and I think people who talk about selling out and stuff like that have a tendency to come from a position of comfort. <laughs> yes, absolutely. And uh, if I'm offered a certain amount of money to do something, I I look at it as, could I tell my dad I turned that down? Mm. Uh, and I if I that. couldn't, if I couldn't turn around, yeah, well, he offered me this much to do that. And if and if he was to go, then I go, no, that's too much money to turn down for that. Yeah, totally. So, yes, I was the voice of the Carrefour Warehouse. And I also shield for Tesco Mobile, and I don't care. Oh, yes, that is you. <laughs> that is you. Yes, I totally know. Yes, it's you. You know, when you hear those voices, you're like, "Who is that?" I know that voice. <laughs> <laughs> don't worry. I did. Um, I, I've done. Oh, I did a some bingo ad in my time, didn't I, Han? We make us up what you will. Oh, I really. <laughs> Which ones? Uh, I did the sun, sun bingo, mm-hmm. and then I did um, I did Paddy Power as well. Yeah, all the this greats. Isn't quite right. When students say that, when they're like, "Oh, I would never do an advert," I'm like, "We'll see." <laughs> yeah. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> Let's wait and see in a few years' time how you actually feel about that. So obviously. You're in London, you're like doing the circuit when you've got enough money to get to the gigs. What would you consider was your sort of big break, if there was one? Um, there wasn't really a, a single big break. It was, so I, I was doing the circuit and had had a fairly steady and, and, and fairly swift, you know, getting rise, getting established on the circuit. I was fairly quickly doing all the, all the clubs. And then I, I did the Edinburgh Fringe... In '95, me and two other Irish guys did a did a show together, and then from that we got to go to Australia the following year. Wow! And do the Melbourne Festival, and I think I did my first TV slot was over there was in was in Australia, because that was back in the day where you could pretend you were famous back home, and the internet wasn't strong enough that people could look that up to verify. So you can go, oh yeah, no, he's a big star in Ireland and England. <laughs> And and then and then uh, I, I, it was Jonathan Ross's big big talent show in 1986. It was just before going to the Edinburgh Fringe in '96. I did Jonathan Ross did a kind of opportunity knock style talent show, so I did five minutes on that, and that sold out me Edinburgh run, which oh, wow. then gave me a momentum in Edinburgh that carried through year on year after that, pretty much. And then in '98, as you mentioned, got nominated for the Perrier Award, so. Yeah, you once upon a time did those sort of shows, didn't you? And um, there were hardly any channels, you know. Um, it's kind of taken on a different way now, isn't it, stand-up comedy? You can get on TikTok, can't you, and just sort of put a few funny things out there and it's it just works so differently now, doesn't it, trying to uh, start a stand-up career, it seems, from the outside anyway. Well, there's a lot more channels now that you can do it through. But it's interesting, even though we've got more channels now, there was there was bigger comedy shows later on. So when I was starting out, there was a stand up show and things like that, uh, and they weren't really very big. They were maybe watched by a million people, which mm. I guess would be big now. But then then wasn't that big. Mm. But then sort of Life of the Apollo came along, like that was this midway through my career. But you had things like Life of the Apollo and Michael McIntyre's Road Show, and you could have a couple of people like um, what's his name Kevin Bridges. Like Kevin Bridges did one slot, wow, uh, one really, really good slot on McIntyre's Roadshow, and Bosh, he was selling out the Hydro in Glasgow. Wow. Uh, I mean, he had the material to back it up, yeah. you know. But there, there, you, you do occasionally get a get a get a case of a TV slot just absolutely catapulting you, and just and just skyrocketing you. But now, yeah, now there's just uh, so many different ways to get your face out there. You can just keep churning out videos on Instagram and and build your uh, and TikTok and and build your following that way. It's it's not limited to just doing the clubs anymore. And so, 
did your pa- what was your parents' thoughts about all this when you decided to drop out of uni and head to London and yeah. pursue comedy? Were they supportive? Were they concerned? What did they think about it? Um, their their take on it was they were happy to support me while I was at university, uh, but they were not going to support me moving to London. Right. You know, sort of on spec to just, you know, if they want to, if I wanted to move home, I could move in with them while I was trying to get going. But they weren't going to just send money to London to to support what sounded like a very odd <laughs> proposal. That was pretty much. And as time went on. Well, as time went on, they're, they're my biggest fans, you know, yeah, without sure. a doubt. But, and, and now they don't need to send me any money to support me anymore. Well, sure. Uh, but, you know. <laughs> I'm not sending them any. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and we always, I, I'm always really fascinated about this. Like, but do you feel like, obviously, you've had like a great level of success, and I'm sure your life or lifestyle potentially is different to how you grew up. But is your children's life very different to your life as a child? Oh, without a doubt, without a doubt. And I've talked about this on stage. I think. And this will partly be just a generational thing. It'll just be because, you know, we're older and times change. But I think also there will be a a class aspect to this. But I think the main thing that gets me is when I look at the amount of parenting I'm expected to do (laughs) versus the amount of parenting I myself received, (laughs) I don't think that tallies up. You know, I feel like... I could leave my, I could have left my children in a field at the age of six and never seen them again. And I'd still have done more parenting than my dad did his entire life. That is so true, isn't it? The amount of energy you're meant to put in, the amount of kind of clubs and how much you're supposed to nurture your children's very not possible talents. Who knows? Yeah, it's that thing of like, oh, he's humming a tune. Let's get him singing lessons. Oh, look, he seems to be just tapping away on the table. Buy him a drum kit. <laughs> look, he's skipping around the garden. Ballet lessons now. Where does that start? Is it because is it because we had so little or less growing up that you kind of just want to give them everything? Or is it just because there's just such a pressure these days to go, kids have to be into everything, put them in this club. Do what, what, was it a combination of both? I mean, I'm not a parent, so. Yeah, I don't know what it is. I think it's just the fact that there is so much choice but I think you also have to be so much more involved in it as well in that. And partly maybe it's just because of where I live. You can't get anywhere. You've got to get in the car. So I can't just send the kids off. Mm. Like when I was a kid, if you wanted to go to something, you could get the bus or you could walk to it. So I, you know, I, I, I did karate in, in, in the school I, I used to go to. You know, the, the, the junior school I went to was also where the karate class was that I went. So I would just walk to it. Yeah, right. And I, and I walked to school from a fairly early age. But I, we, have to, we have to take our kids in, in the car to school every morning. So I guess they don't even get that social aspect or even the, even the, the sort of rough and tumble school of hard knocks aspect of, of they don't have to walk through a yeah, yeah. scary yeah. council estate to get home. And so um, obviously like your life's very different now and um, we're all coming at this from a place of privilege really. But do you think, um, have you ever experienced, I know a lot of people do, um, so particularly if, you've, if you are working class, you found yourself um, in environments that are less working class. Do you ever get imposter syndrome? Do you feel a level of that at all when you're at, you know, swanky awards ceremonies or? Uh, well, I, I'm quite aware uh, of, of the fact that a lot of the people, a lot of our social circle now, not in, not in my friends in comedy, but now like where we live near Saffron Walden, a lot of the people that we might go to their houses for dinner, I am aware that I am not the same. (laughs) And, you know, they'll make fun of me because I referred to me dinner as me tea or or whichever one I've gotten wrong. I went to somebody's house once and they had a conniption because I fucking sat down at the table Eh? before... The women had fucking sat oh, down. Get yeah. out. Oh, oh, come hang on. on. Had you I am not travels? kidding you. What I am not <laughs> fucking making this up. Oh, I mean, two of them had gone to Eton. I mean, it was just. Oh, yeah. well, there you go. So I'm aware of that. 
Yeah. Oh, Lord, yeah. Uh, does that make you chippier or does it make you sort of feel like, oh, right, I'll try and do the right thing to make everyone else feel comfortable? Or you just think, oh, fuck them. I'm, I'm sat, there's a chair I'm sitting. I'm, yeah, I do feel like, I mean, no, I, I mean, I did get up, but I also thought we are not coming to this house again for dinner. <laughs> yeah, that's what I'd have again. done. Yeah, that's what I'd have done. <laughs> <laughs> I'll get through this, but then that's it. And it's it's all it's it, it there's there's class and there's xenophobia all kind of seem wrapped up in one. There's being Irish and people people using mm. terms like oh that's a bit Irish for when when talking oh. about something that's a bit backward or a bit wrong. Yeah, yeah people yeah, will still yeah. do that. So I'm 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 kind of aware of all of that with the kids. There I'm I'm you know I'm I'm very aware that the kids are posher than me. But I mean, aside from that, it's just the fact they have English accents is, is enough to set me on edge. <laughs> oh no! I find it a lot easier when we go and spend time with my wife's family in Derbyshire because they're farmers, and then my kids will kind of top up their Derbyshire accents while we're there, and then I find it much easier to take them talking about the difference between something that's jiggered and something that's buggered, <laughs> and I find that a lot easier to listen to. Yeah. Then. Daddy, is there any more elderflower cordial? Yeah. <laughs> I often think about that with my son. I just think, like, the things that... I know it's so specific, but the things that he has eaten and drunk and he is seven years old... He likes olives and hummus and all that, doesn't he? Oh, I didn't, I didn't, what a dickhead. I mean, honestly, <laughs> honestly. I think I discovered hummus in my 30s. I'm 51 and I still don't like olives. <laughs> well, they're awful. They do but... say they do say that if you eat 14 olives in a row, you acquire the taste, apparently. Right, why bother? <laughs> I don't know. Mm. Why would you bother with that? Keep up with the Joneses, keep up with my posh mates. No. All right, fine. No. <laughs> no, I think it was Jackie Mason. Jackie Mason always used to say, yeah, you ever have to cultivate a taste for potato chips? No, because they taste good. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to ask you a question, Ed, actually, about comedy and stand-up comedy. Yeah. It always feels like quite an inherently... Um, working class or it did um uh, there's nothing to stop you there getting up on stage with a microphone going to uh, starting in all the working men's clubs and stuff um do you think do you find that a lot of stand-up comedians are working class um i think there's probably if you if you go on the circus i think generally there's probably slightly more middle class ones but i think when the working class ones come along, they tend to cut through and sound different and, and, and I don't know, they tend to end up doing better. So I think of Rob Beckett and Kevin yeah. Bridges being two recent ones. But I also think of, I mean, Peter Kay sounds quite working class. I don't know that he is, you know, that working class. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but, Certainly, Mike Michael McIntyre isn't. No, no, he's know. very no. middle class, isn't he? Um, <laughs> what? So I think there's a mix, I'll be honest with you. Yeah, I think maybe I was thinking more about, like, in the 80s, you think back to all those stand-up comedians that started in the Working Men's Club. It felt like a real working class kind of... I think it's definitely changed over the years. I think it's slightly more middle class nowadays because, like, a lot of things, it's that thing of you've got to do it for free for ages and you've got to be able to afford. Yeah, and, yeah right. And That's you, it, right. And, and to get on... You know, you might have to have the money to put on a show at the Edinburgh Fringe or to live or at least commute in and out of London on the reg in order to get going on the circuit yeah. there. And I, I think things like that where you're not being paid straight away, where there's certainly no apprenticeship route right. in, you end up with, with more middle class people doing it. So I think it's it's kind of swung the other way since the Working Men's yeah, Club days. yeah. And are you seeing that? Are you seeing that on the circuit now? Like just sort of less working class people coming up? Yeah, I would say there. I'd, I'd say there's not as many. Yeah. Pretty. Yeah. But as I say, then the ones that come along have a tendency to cut through. Yeah. Yeah. Because I think there's also a, a hunger on the part of the media to have more working class voices on, uh, you yeah. know, on screen and on stage. I think there's definitely a desire for that. Uh, we're, we're actually, we're going to wrap up soon, Ed, because um, we can't keep your dad. Yeah. I'd love to keep. Uh, talking about this um we we always we always finish the show um asking our guest um if there's any obviously we've celebrated you today is there a working class hero that you can think of that springs to mind that you'd like to celebrate today well i think billy Connolly was probably the best one best example choice. in that he would talk about stuff that wasn't really talked about on tv that much and that you could um relate to 
particularly the idea of, 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 of you know, uh, gathering the nicest pieces of furniture from the house to put them in, in one room <laughs> when somebody's coming over and, and that being the room that they would then guide them into, you know. I love stuff that, like that, yeah. Yeah, and his memory of people going, oh, the deprivation. I go, I didn't really think of it as deprivation at the time, you know. I think he, I think yeah. what was great about him is seeing him on something like Parkinson and stuff like that, surrounded by a lot of the time these, you know, intellectuals or you know the great and the good and having them all pissing themselves laughing with his patter and just sort of owning the the space while being you know a a, a working class man i i think that was something that was quite it, it, it sticks in your mind growing up an incredibly like bright and erudite one too right like just because he had that thick scott like he's got that thick scottish accent is people are so judgmental about accents and being working class and that we're without academia or we're not academic and he's so i mean surely one of the greatest of all time right yeah yeah without a doubt i'm sorry i never got to meet him i'm not talking i don't mean to talk about it like he's like he's just he's retired now no no so my chances of meeting him have 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 gone down considerably yeah of course uh, i've never i never got to come across him what a shame and is there anyone else you would celebrate in terms of like uh one that isn't a celebrity is there anyone you can think of like mums dads nans or yeah well my granny i think uh (laughs) was pretty awesome uh my mother's mother because i didn't know this but my mother, I mean, I knew this bit. My, my mother grew up in a really quite nice house on the south side of Dublin in a place called Rendla. And her dad was a postman. He was a post rider in that he, he rode a motorbike oh. uh, delivering the post. And I remember quite late on in life, just sort of putting everything together and going, how did you guys grow up in that house in Rendla? when Bump, as we knew him, was a postman. And she said, oh, well, we squatted him. <laughs> no way, that's brilliant. Oh, I love that. And, do, and y- Yeah, and they, she said that she remembers as a kid doing colouring books by, by candlelight in this, in this uh, house that was, had only just been built and the electricity hadn't even been turned wow. on yet. And they just kind of went. It was like we're we're having this. I mean, I think they paid a price. They didn't. They they didn't just steal it, but they got it for a, a knockdown price because it had squatters. That in is it. so brilliant. That and what was what was your nan's name? Well, we we as kids we called her Gaggy, but she was known as Die, even though her real name was Bessie. <laughs> Love that. That was another thing growing up. Nobody's name was really their name. <laughs> that to me is like just hundred percent standard working class stuff, isn't it? Mm. Um, well, Ed, we're celebrating her, Billy Connolly, and yeah, you today. Yeah. Thank you so much for coming on. No, thanks very much. It was lovely talking to you. Oh, I love that chat. What a great guy. So interesting. And I really love his sort of like going, you know what, this is not for me and giving up on a university course that wasn't working for him and making his way to London and just doing what he knew in his heart he was meant to be doing. I find that sort of courage uh, of youth (laughs) really admirable. Yeah, yeah. And it's a difficult world the comedy world it's really harsh and like it's and like you know we've talked about it and you've heard me harp on about it how difficult it is to sustain like Ed said about paying for your own Edinburgh's and that it really clears you out I mean I managed to do three Edinburgh's and that was me done um had no money left and well didn't have any money at the time but borrowed money and um yeah I just really admire the um the character of a stand-up comedian I think they have to really really graft um, and yeah. particularly when you're not from a privileged background as well, you have to really scrap and stuff. And yeah, he's he's and he's been going for so long, like and sustained such a level of a brilliant career for so long. I've got uh, loads also, of admiration for him. There's such a pressure him. in stand-up comedy, isn't there, to stay relevant? And yeah, it's exhausting, like isn't it? Really, like effortlessly. Yeah. Um, while still staying true to himself, do you know what I mean? He's he's stayed absolutely relevant and contemporary, but in a way that doesn't feel forced. And I think that's really admirable as well. In any industry, in any artistic industry, anyone who sticks it out 
in over the long haul is just a hero of mine and he's a particularly hilarious one. So Does that mean I'm a gets... hero of yours then also? Because um, I've stuck it out. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. Anyway, thanks for listening. Oh, how um, <laughs> dare you? Oh. <laughs> you know you're a hero of mine. As you are of mine too. Um, I was at a Sounded really insincere when I said that. Didn't no, I? No, I actually meant it. Forced. <laughs> <laughs> um, and you can catch Ed's show. He's going to be in Edinburgh this year. Honestly, please go. He's he's, he's amazing. I saw him. Oh God, years ago now. Um, and um, he feels like he's never aged as well. He just like looks exactly the same. Um, but it go, sounds go- like the show's going to be a really personal one as well. And no doubt, of course, it's going to be absolutely hilarious but i think it's going to be just a, a really special one as well yeah so if you're up at the uh, at the fringe go and check him out or get get a ticket as soon as you can because i bet it will sell out immediately well that's, that's it that for this series and what a series it's been yes yeah, right. we had I mean, it's like been all right in, well listen we've had some <laughs> insane guests and yeah. also you got married <gasps> during did. this season so did we you know this will always that? be the season in which you got married did we even ever mention that uh, I think we did mention that we we're off on your Hindu, but probably we didn't mention after the Hindu what happened on the Hindu, which is probably just as well. So, <laughs> but yeah, you got married. Woohoo! I did get married. Yeah, and, and what to, a day to, it was. To, yeah, I wanted to say to Ed, you know, to fellow Dubliner. Um, so I'm, I'm, yeah, going to get me an Irish passport and I'm uh, getting out I'm of so here. I'm so glad you didn't do your Irish accent then, because you would never have got an Irish passport <laughs> had you done that. Um, what an amazing series. So lucky to have that. Again, I'm just blown away by the people who come on and are so generous talking about their journeys and so inspiring. I, I sort of wish, like, this is the podcast I would have liked to listen to as a kid, but they no. wasn't even podcasts when I was a kid. So. <laughs> I know. Now, I want to thank all our guests for this series. It's been um, it's been brilliant. They give up their time to come and talk to us. And, um, yeah, no, it's been brilliant. And we'll... We'll see you again soon for another one. But until then, stay safe, get the fan out, it's still hot, and uh, (laughs) keep it classy. Bye! The Proper Class Podcast is produced by Michelle Farr-Scott for Rangabee Productions, edited by James Torrance, with music by Tommy Music. Please don't forget to like and subscribe. Spread the word. Tell your friends, neighbours, whoever will listen. We've also got an Instagram page. Ooh, get us. And you can follow all the news and goss at The Proper Class Podcast. And if you haven't nodded off yet, we've also gone and got ourselves an official email. So do get in touch. The email is properclasspodcast at gmail.com. Thanks for listening, folks. And remember, keep it classy. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.